Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. As you're turning there, let me quote one prominent scholar who, when commenting on this story, said, this is the weirdest account in the Gospels. And after studying it, I'm not sure that I would disagree. But a fascinating look into the heart and into the identity of the Savior. I've entitled this sermon, A Most Improbable Missionary. And I think as we move through it together, you will agree that if you were going to recruit a missionary, this would not have been your protocol or your process. Let's read it to set it in our minds and then we'll walk through it verse by verse. Mark chapter five, verse one. They came to the other side of the lake, of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains. And he gashed himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, this man ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? He said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, There was a large herd of swine, pigs, feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it to the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed that man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. 
And they began to implore him to leave the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And Jesus did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Now, before we start going through this passage, I am aware that the simple reading of it raises an enormous amount of questions, curiosities, So many questions that you want an answer to, and let me just say from the beginning, I will likely not provide any for you that Mark doesn't provide for me. I have a lot of questions about this text, a lot of questions. And to be quite honest and frank, reading the commentaries on this section over the last few weeks has been an exercise in uh, in humor, honestly. Speculations that go way beyond the synoptic Matthew and Mark and Luke's description of this text. Mark leaves us unsatisfied with a lot of curious questions, but most satisfied at the end that to really understand what happened here is to walk away amazed by Jesus. Now, as we open Mark's fifth chapter, we parachute into a fluid situation, pun intended. He's just come to the shore after an encounter in the middle of the lake. The disciples have responded to Jesus' direction um, from uh, sailing from the northwest corner in Capernaum down to the uh, southeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. He wanted to go to the other side in chapter four, verse 35, which we discover is in the land of the Gadarenes, or you'll see in Luke or, or um, Matthew, uh, the uh, Gerasenes, just same thing. You're talking about counties and cities. It's the same area. Don't make too much of that. On their way across the lake, these fishermen who were professional sailors and very experienced, not just with water, but that body of water, encountered the fiercest storm they'd ever been involved with. They were frightened and in fear for their life. Luke tells us that the boat was taking on water. And there's the Savior, the Lord Jesus, so exhausted from his ministry in Capernaum that he's sound asleep on a cushion in the stern, the back of the boat. It's not difficult to picture that this cushion was saturating itself with with water and Water was around the feet of the disciples and wind and waves were splashing across all of these men and landing on the Lord himself. So they wake Jesus, a wet and worn teacher. He gets up and speaks to the wind and the waves and tells them as if they were animate objects, be still and be quiet. And the lake becomes like glass. The winds stop. 
The stars reappear. Remember, this is at night. And they could probably, no doubt, see the fires, the lights on the shore in the direction they were heading. The last verse in chapter 4 is the clue that we need to understand this story in chapter 5 with the Gerasene demoniac. Now, let me set the context for you for a second. We, we saw last week there's a mega storm. He uses the Greek word megale, mega, a massive storm that, that was also resolved in a massive or mega calm, which caused them to experience mega or massive fear in the hearts of the followers sailing with Jesus. Their fear of the storm outside their boat was nothing compared to the fear of the one who calmed the storm who was now sitting inside the boat. And so verse 41 of Mark 4, they became very much afraid, mega afraid, and said to one another, who then is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Now, this is what's striking. We have no record of them giving an answer to each other. And yet we're about to find the answer to that question from a group of demons. Jesus is about to do the unexpected. He's heading into Gentile territory to heal and save a demon-infested Gentile who was a terrorist of the area. Now, just so that you don't get confused, Matthew records that there were two men there's no contradiction here. There were two men. There, there could have been even more. This was probably a place where demon-infested people kind of coagulated to do their demon-infested terrorizing. But there were at least two men. But Mark highlights the leader. And as we witness what can only be called as one of the greatest recorded instances of the work of salvation... I want to follow this narrative by negotiating it with just, just some markers as an outline. These are just markers that we can move through this area together with. We're going to look at three junctures in the framework of salvation. Three junctures in the framework of salvation because I think this is a paradigmatic story. The junctures of salvation in this man's life are equally as, as prominent in the life of anyone who's believed. The first thing we meet in verses one to five is a hopeless condition. And when I say hopeless, we are gonna read hopelessness, a hopeless condition. Let's jump in. They, stop right there. They is Jesus with uh, the disciples in his boat and other followers who were in other boats. There were multiple boats there with him. We had to find that out in chapter four. They were all sailing across to the other side. He was escaping the crowd. By the way, he will be here one day, be asked to leave, and go right back where he came from. This is a divine appointment. He's just calmed the sea. They're bailing water, no doubt, out of the boat. The water is glass since the wind is gone. The disciples are no doubt rowing for the shore because there's no wind to sail by. And then they look up, and you have to know that especially Peter and Andrew, James and John, who were fishermen by trade on this, this lake, would have known that section of the shore. It's only 13 miles by 7 miles wide. They knew the whole lake. They knew they were sailing right toward the Gadarenes, the 
Gerasene area. Now, it says they landed in the land, the country of the Gerasenes. This is a, a Gerasa, likely a Kursi or a, a Gergisa in different literatures that would point to this, this area. It was within the administrative district of the uh, Hippos, which was one of the major cities of the Decapolis. These were the 10 Gentile cities in the Jordan Valley. It's at the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And this location is critical to the story. It's Gentile territory. This is the Jewish Messiah with his Jewish followers that are now in no, no longer in familiar territory. If you ever played sports, maybe you played football or baseball or you ran track and you went to an away game and you felt the pressure of everyone there being against you, that's where he is right now. He is, this is not a home team advantage he has. He is in Gentile territory. Mark makes some important points he wants us to notice. He begs us to see this. First of all, this tormented man had an unclean spirit, we'll see in verse two. He had been banished to live among the tombs, which according to Numbers 19, was unclean in and of itself. To even visit a tomb, you were ceremonially unclean for a week and had to do all sorts of rituals and baptisms to get that unclean cleanness off. Add to that the uncleanness of the presence of pigs and pig herders. Have you read Leviticus 11? This is not Jewish dietary delicacies. It's pork. Pork was strictly forbidden by the Jewish dietary laws in Leviticus 11.7, Deuteronomy 14.8. And finally, we also know this. Pork was a staple of the Romans and the Roman armies that were stationed in the Decapolis. So... If the pig herds and their workers were a part of feeding the Roman army, which were oppressing the Jews, this was even a worse situation. With all of this uncleanness, remember every word, every jot, every tittle, every preposition, every particle matters in the word of God. Don't miss the pronoun in verse two. When he got out of the boat. It didn't say they or them. This demoniac no doubt had a reputation all around the lake. These two men at least who were living there. Uncontrollable, screaming night and day. No one wanted to go through that area and they would have been close enough to the lake which was the major trade road that would have walked by there. This was walking through traveling through with your life in your own hands. Jesus knows where he is. He knows who occupies it. He knows that it's unclean soil to even put your foot on. And he, not they, he got out of the boat. I don't know that the others stayed in the boat. It's not hard to imagine they might have. This is unclean. They know this area, they know this man, and he's running toward them, we'll find in a moment. This brutal beast of a man, known throughout the area. And then we meet Mark's favorite word in the description of him. At verse two, immediately, immediately, right then. 
Moving along, he's hurrying us to the cross. Immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit. He could have said demonic, but he makes the point that this is Gentile and unclean spirit met him. So get, here's, let, let's, let's use our sanctified imagination. The boat comes ashore, all these boats come ashore. Jesus is the first one out of the boat and there's this man. God sets up this divine appointment between the demoniac and Jesus. Again, Matthew tells us there were two men. Mark's just dealing with the leader here in this description. And a little footnote here. Mark's description of this account is three times longer than Luke's and Matthew's. Speaking again to the eyewitness account that Mark would have gotten from Peter. I think it's likely that God used the storm in this demon-infested man's life to grab his attention. Let's think about this. This is just a few hours. They're crossing over at night through the storm. Jesus calms the sea. Um, we think it's daylight because all of these things were very visible. So in the next morning, they sail into this area and think about what just happened. There was a violent storm that would have obviously been experienced on the land and around the lake. He was probably hiding and sheltering from these winds and this, this rain, this pelting storm that was all around the lake. And then the weather, imagine being in that and being on the land, and then the weather goes to absolute placid, glassy water in an instant. I don't know, but I wonder if this demoniac comes out of his shelter, looks at the glassy lake under the clear skies, sees this, this, this caravan of boats coming toward him, and then he recognizes who's in the lead boat. In any event, he comes to meet Jesus. Now, these next verses describe the man and his condition. It's difficult to read this. It's honestly a pain to read this without the gravity of the situation grabbing your heart. I think it's a fair assumption that the disciples and the followers who were sailing with Jesus knew well of this man and these men, knew this area. This was forbidden territory. The rumors would have swirled around the trade, around the lake. Don't go past the Gadarene coastline. It's dangerous. How dangerous? We know, but they, they tried to tie this guy up or these men up. They, they wanted him tied up and bound. You don't tie someone up, one up who's not a threat. Look at the description in verse three. And he had his dwelling. We're gonna just focus on this man. I know there were two, at least. We're gonna focus on this man. He had his dwelling among the tombs, instant unclean. He's living, tombs back then were not graveyards as you and I know them. They were, they were caves. And a tomb would typically have multiple bodies that would be placed in them. He lived around the tombs. And there's two phrases that should, should jump out at you in verses um, three and four. No one, no one, no one was able to tie him up, bind him. That word bind there typically means to use ropes. And we find out that it probably meant ropes because they said even with a chain. So they bind him with ropes, broken. They tried chains, they chained this guy. Verse four, because he had been bound by shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles had been broken into pieces. 
And here's our phrase again. And no one, said twice on purpose, no one was strong enough to subdue him. He'd been tied up, probably gang tackled by multiple men, chained, shackled, bound with every strong implement they could find and no one and nothing was able to subdue him. This speaks of the supernatural strength of this man infested with demons. No person, no device was strong enough to control him. It gets worse in verse five. Constantly. The Greek tense here is never ending. On and on, night and day, he was, this is pitiful, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, gnashing himself with stones. We've, we've learned what people did to control him. Why was he cutting himself with stones? It was a very common practice uh, in the ancient Near East to think that you could get rid of demons by cutting yourself and they would get out. He was trying to self-heal. He wanted freedom from this oppression. He he was cutting himself, screaming in misery, wanting relief. Probably infected and grotesque. This description is heart-wrenching, this torment. It's constant, miserable, inescapable. Cutting himself to look at self-relief. And Mark is showing us something here. He's showing us that the most unlikely person to receive kindness and the gift of salvation, the kind gift of forgiveness, the grace of mercy, kindness, redemption, even a commission to missionary work, the most unlikely person is standing here before us. Pull the car over for a second. The argument could be made that if Jesus would save and have compassion on one like this, There is hope for any sinner. None of you, none of your family, none of your friends is beyond the reach of grace and mercy when it's given by a loving and compassionate Savior. You know, we can easily look at this and say, well, this man had a hopeless condition and not remember that ours was equally as hopeless. Oh, it may not have been demon infested. It may not have been gnashing our, ourself and gashing ourselves to try to get rid of, of demons from what was going on inside. It may not have looked on the outside that, that bad, but we were equally as dead spiritually as this man. We all inherit from birth a hopeless, cureless condition. Let me just ask you, if you if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are equally as in trouble as this man. And you have equally as, oppor- equal, as equal an opportunity to receive the grace of Jesus and his salvation as this man will find as well. Hopeless condition. Just as a footnote, if you are gonna choose who to be a missionary, you've already chosen these, these, these disciples. Would you add this guy? Would his resume come to your desk and you say, yeah, let's look at him. Let's interview, let's go across the sea and interview that guy to have him be one of us. 
Which brings us, number two, to a dramatic conversion. And let me say before we leak into this, every conversion is dramatic. If you're raised in a Christian home, never knew a time when you didn't believe in Jesus, but came to know him, your conversion is equally as dramatic as God raises the dead and transforms and converts the soul to love him. So verse six, seeing Jesus from a distance. This tells us that he was observing this caravan, this, these, this uh, 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 floating uh, group of disciples from a distance. He sees them from a distance. We've already been told that he came to meet Jesus. Now we discover that he saw Jesus from a distance. Let me bore you, but for you Greeks, it's a second heiress from Treco, and he rushed, he ran, he sprinted toward Jesus. So let's take what Mark has given us. We know he's up the hill, and we know it's a hill. We'll find out it's a hill in a minute. The pigs will help us know that. He's up on a hill. The lake is now placid. He looks down, sees the boats, recognizes Jesus. He ran up and prostrated himself, bowed to the ground. Put, literally means put your face in dirt and lays before Jesus on the ground, and then he shouts with a voice. How loud was his voice? Everyone could hear it in the mountains. No one went through there without hearing this guy yell. This was a well-conditioned set of vocal cords this man had with a loud voice. How do we know it's a loud voice? Because Mark uses his word again. We had a mega storm followed by a mega calm, which solicited a mega fear. And now this guy uses a mega voice. Loud, massive voice. Look at what he says. What business do you and I, do we have with each other? Jesus knew his name, his Nazarene name. Son of the Most High. It's really important to notice the last thing we heard the disciples say, who is this man is the first answer the demon gives. It's incredible. He identifies Jesus with his humanity, earthly name. And then he says, you are the son. A common way, and we have documents from the Decapolis, a common way of talking about uh, people who are Messiah figures and, and saviors was to say, well, he's a, a, a son of God. This is specific. The son of the most high. Pronouncement against polytheism that would existed in that region. We know when the angel announced to Mary the true identity of the child she was carrying, the angel told her he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. Can you imagine Mary hearing Peter's account of this? And saying, I remember that. I was told he would be called that. I didn't anticipate it would be from that source, but I, this, is, this is an expected title given to my son. The demons will fulfill that prophecy given to Mary. These demons and this man recognize who Jesus is in his humanity, they gave his name, and who he was in his deity. That'll be really clear in just a moment. I implore you, strange word. Some of your texts may actually say this. Uh, um, um, or or kidzo. it means swear by an oath. 
It's not just I implore you, I encourage you. It means a literal translation is Jesus, swear by God that you will not torment me. The man lays on the ground before Jesus. He's begging Jesus, get this, to forestall and postpone the certain coming judgment of the demonic realm into the lake of fire. Don't, don't tor- torment is the word we use in Revelation of those who experienced the, the horrors of hell. Don't torment us. Don't, this is, they knew their end. Don't do it now. Don't send us to hell yet. Now we find out something interesting in verse eight. He had been saying, this is a Greek that meant it was ongoing for a while, come out of the man, you singular unclean spirit. Singular, unclean. There's a slight problem though, because there wasn't just one. (laughs) And Jesus is fishing here and asking him these questions and casting out a demon here and a demon there to show the gravity of the situation, verse nine. And he was saying to him, what is your name? Was he trying to be compassionate? I just wanna know your name. I wanna be your friend. No, he was trying. He was doing exactly what he intended to make the demonized man show the depth of his demonization and the multitude of the infestation. I mean, I've heard people say, I've read people say, what a gracious Lord saying, what is your name? How kind. You know what he was doing? He was saying, identify yourself. And the answers, he answers in a human voice. He says, my name is Legion. It's a Roman cohort of 6,000 soldiers. My name is Garrison. My name is many people. And then he qualifies it for we are many. I have a lot of questions there. And Mark just goes on to the next verse. Can people be multiply possessed? How many can you have? Can you have 10? Can you have 1,000, 6,000? Was this uh, hyperbole? Or, uh, he, Mark doesn't tell us, and neither does Matthew or Luke. We do find out in verse 10, though, he began to implore him, literally beg him earnestly not to send them out of the country. They were quite happy in an unclean area with, among unclean soil and unclean people. Don't send us out of this country. We're comfortable here. Don't send us away from here. Then Mark just footnotes this. Think of Peter now. Footnote. Notes on the script. There was a large herd of swine, of pigs, feeding nearby on the mountain. Put yourself in the disciples' sandals for a moment. Here's this guy in this area and there's those pigs which they would have been horrified by. And the demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. He's casting them out and they're not happy to be disembodied spirits. They wanna go into the swine. Now, this is a place where my, my, my questions are not satisfied with the answers that Mark gives us. I look forward to heaven when we have for eternity to say, can, I, can we just go back to that scene and talk about this for a few minutes? Peter, James, John, Jesus. Because one of the things I want to know is, 
Why do the demons just leave? We're not told. Why do they go into the swine? We're not told why. Someone said, well, they needed to, they needed to be in some kind of body. Well, that doesn't work because they're gonna go die in the, in the lake in a second. Where do they go after that? The best explanation that I think I've come to that helps me, and this is not in any way authoritative because Mark doesn't tell us, is that these were such destructive demons and spirits. They wanted to go out with the, the grand finale of fireworks and just say, this is who we are. I just think it's interesting. I don't know if I'm confessing here and you need to pray for me. But there are so many things in this story that, that pique my interest and make me curious that are really not even the point. And I love verse 13. Who's in charge here? Jesus gave them permission. Who is the one who's the Lord of the demons? It's the Lord himself. Coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. That, is, that would be such a, 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 a laden with meaning phrase to a Jewish reader. Unclean swine right next to each other. And then the strangest thing happens. The herd rushed down the steep bank. There's only one place in, in that southeastern portion of, of Israel. If you've ever been there, they probably pointed out to you, which would have been a steep decline right into the sea, cliffed out on both sides. This was obviously where they had run down. They rushed down a steep bank into the sea, and then we find out 2,000 of them were there, and they drowned in the sea. Let's take another footnote. Because the amount of space that commentators give to the ethic of this is remarkable. You know, how did Jesus take the, the livelihood of these herdsmen away? How uncompassionate is that? This would have been, in modern standards, somewhere over $300,000 of loss. Somebody lost their livelihood there. And so people have speculated. Liberals say, this, see, this is proof that he's not really divine. He's got flaws and he, he was growing. He wouldn't have done that later in his life. I think God is making a profound statement here about the value of one human soul versus the value of pigs that were going to die and be eaten and be consumed in a heartbeat anyway. The point is, Mark doesn't care to answer that question. And because he doesn't, we shouldn't strain our speculation and try as well. We do find out this though. The owners of the pigs saw it. They were there. They witnessed it. What's their response? What's the owner of these pigs going to do? What are they going to do? Verse 14. The herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and the country. The town, the county, the state. They, everybody, you've got to hear what just happened. Were they mad or curious or wondering? We, don't, we just know that they told everybody. Such that the people came out to see what it was that had happened. Just picture the scene here. Can you imagine 2,000 pigs floating and bobbing around the boats 
where these men had just gotten out of. The scene would have been nothing they'd ever experienced before. But that scene of the pigs floating was nothing compared to what they were about to see next. Verse 15, they came to see Jesus and observed the man. Stop right there. They came to see Jesus and their attention is instantly diverted to the man. See that? Who had been demon possessed. They knew who this man was. They had chained him. They had bound him. They had shackled him, tied him up, been terrorized by him. And here they find him sitting down clothed, we found out from Matthew that he was running around naked, in his right mind, sane. And then he doubles down, the very man who had the legion. And then what happens to the disciples after they saw Jesus calm the storm and make everything okay is the same thing that happens to these people when they had been cured of these terrorists and everything was okay, they became frightened. Fear after Jesus calmed the storm and now fear after the demoniac is delivered points to the proper response to the true identity of Jesus. Who is this man? And there's one person in the scene who knows exactly who that man is. I guess there's two if you count Jesus. Verse 16, those who had seen it described it to them. So there's all these people coming and then there's herdsmen who are there and they're saying, he was God. And he talked and they cast him out and they went and they swan and they ran and they died and they... How it happened to the demon-possessed man and about all the swine. And what would they do? Fall down and worship? Would you be the, the pastor of our Decapolis city of Hippos? they began to beg him to leave. <laughs> Get out of our region. Back in the boat and go away. Now, we can speculate again. Why would they say this? Well, I mean, part of me says, why wouldn't they want him to stay to offer salvation to anyone? They didn't see all of that. They're just kind of coming uh, in the ninth inning to watch this thing. And they saw what he'd done to this livelihood of these herdsmen. They said, would you please, we're better off here without you in our area. They asked him to leave. He was not welcome there anymore. They would perceive him as an obvious threat to their economy. Think about this. Think about this. Everyone saw this man as a dangerous terrorist in need of subjection. But Jesus saw him as a tortured soul in need of salvation. Hopeless condition led to his dramatic conversion. And now this leads to a most unexpected three gospel commission. Verse 18, as he was getting in the boat, they say, get out of here, leave our region. Okay, gets back in the boat. He's going to sail back across. <laughs> Jesus in his divine providence, God's divine providence brought, brought Jesus to this shore for this man to do something really special. 
The man who is demon-possessed, this imploring, it's not the same word in Greek, this is uh, come alongside, parakaleo, was imploring him that he might go with them and, and accompany him. This demon-possessed guy wants to be a disciple. Wouldn't you? And verse 19 is like, you hear the music and it's getting really good and then it's stopped with fingernails on a chalkboard because Jesus unexpectedly says, verse 19, no, he did not let him come with him. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Jesus had done nothing, that's not fair to say, his main appeal to people for now at least 18 months has been, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. This man says, I want to follow you. And he says, no, can't do it. Refused. Why? Why would he say no to this man? A little background. If anyone was going to reach the Decapolis with the good news of the gospel of Jesus, it was not going to be those Jewish disciples. In fact, Peter is going to struggle with these pigs all the way to Acts chapter 10. So he says to him, again, verse 19, go home. That wasn't a rude thing. I want you to go back to where you came from. Think about this. He likely had not been home in a long time. That would have been a sweet, endearing thing. Go home. You can return home. But here's the commission. To your people. Go to the people you came from and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. One of the dominant themes in the four gospels, obviously, and Mark in particular, is to demonstrate the deity of Christ. This is one of the most profound demonstrations of the deity of Christ. Listen, from Jesus' own lips in the entire four gospels. Think about the command. Report to them what great things, and then he uses an description of God. God, the Lord has done for you. He wasn't just talking about him as a master. That was a designation of God. Tell them what great things God has done for you. Who did that for you? Jesus. God did it for you. Jesus is God. For this man and the Lord Jesus and God are the same. And he becomes a missionary to the Gentiles. We're gonna come back to him in just a few chapters, but one thing we keep seeing, we'll, we'll see this in the healing and in the next uh, uh, story. Jesus keeps telling people, you see what I did? Don't tell anybody. Just keep it to yourself. Now, we'll find out next week that was because the, 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 the message wasn't complete yet. He, hasn't, he hadn't died for sin. He hadn't rose from the dead. After that, he'll say, go and take my message everywhere. But this guy's different. Go and tell them everything the Lord has done for you. I think that is such a great description of evangelism. Probably the best description of evangelism I, I know of. Do you need to know four spiritual laws? Do you need to know this? No, you go tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. 
I love verse 20. And he went away and began to, that's the same word for preach, proclaim, preach, in the Decapolis, 10 cities, he was going on a tour, a preaching tour. What great things Jesus had indeed done for him. And everyone was shocked. They were amazed. This is the first Christian missionary in the Gospels. Think about that. A Gentile to Gentiles. How improbable and what hope that gives to each one of us. The basis of this man's evangelism was simply to tell what Jesus had done for him. Remember Paul, when he's in Acts, he's put on trial at least four times. Council of Jerusalem, Festus, Felix, and Agrippa. All four times. You remember what he does? He tells the testimony of what God had done for him. Peter said, listen, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. 1 Peter 3.15. Always being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is where? Within you. Evangelism should be as simple as telling people what great things the Lord has done for us. And if you're a Christian, you have that story. You have that story. There's no small and significant testimonies. You don't have to say I was demon-possessed and on drugs and going the wrong way and, and God saved me. That's a glorifying testimony to God. But to say I was raised by loving Christian parents who taught me the gospel from birth and then at one point I realized God doesn't have grandchildren, only children. I need a relationship with him and he saved me from my miserable sinful state. That is equally as dramatic. In fact, I pray to God we have many of those testimonies in our church. You know, art should bring amazement at the artist. Composition should bring amazement at the composer. And salvation should make us amazed at the Savior. The disciples said, who is Jesus? And the demoniac said, he's the son of the most high. He is the living Savior. So what do we take away from this? Jesus, God's son, being the Lord over the demons. Just a few takeaways that I, I jotted down from my own heart. The forgiven and healed always want to be with Jesus. They want to go with Jesus. They want to go for Jesus. The truly forgiven, the truly healed, the truly delivered want to be near the Lord. And if you've been forgiven, it should be your desire to be near him. And here's the good, the good news. You can be near him anytime you want. Another takeaway is that Jesus has absolute control over the powers, listen, of natural and supernatural forces. These two stories were intended by Mark to be read together. Who is he? The demon says. Great storm, great calm, great fear, great pronouncement that he is the son of the most high God. Jesus is indeed God. Tell everyone what God has done for you. And Jesus is the one who did it. I said it five times. Every, every conversion qualifies as dramatic. Every conversion is the raising of the spiritual dead to life. Wow. Don't ever, ever, ever look at your testimony. If you're a Christian and say, well, it's not as good as someone else's. Are you kidding? <laughs> every testimony is good and dramatic. 
And I think this, this, this teaches me, looking at some of my family members and some of my friends, who are very easy for me to, quote, kind of give up on. It's easy for me to say, wow, well, you know, everyone had given up on this man. Everyone. There is no human condition beyond the power and reach of the gospel of Jesus. Can I say that again? There is no human condition beyond the power and reach of Jesus in the gospel. And our response should be that last phrase. Everyone went away amazed. Everyone went away amazed. Jesus is truly amazing. And the response of being amazed is truly worship. Worship.